Alright all you movie junkies, it is time for the SLS Cast, with your hosts Matt and Tim. And welcome, one and all, to episode 112 of the SLS Cast. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, it is the United States Congressional episode of the SLS Cast, because turns out that the 112th Congress had the largest freshman class in over 60 years. They had 96 new members. That crazy, crazy 112th Congress. And with that little bit of governmental news, I, of course, am the ever-loving host. Loving of what? I don't know. But I'm Matt. <laughs> the, I, I'm sure Leslie Nope from Parks and Recreation would be proud of the opening of this episode. <laughs> And coming to us all the way from Sony Pictures is... <laughs> oh, Tim. Tim be thy name. <laughs> uh, so, uh, other than apparently uh, sick, which I will, I will definitely let you expound on here. Uh, how, how's your week been, expound? sir? Expound? I had, I had bronchitis, but it was a self-diagnosis bronchitis. Uh, chronic bronchitis, because apparently uh, via wikipedia.com or webmd.com, acute bronchitis means that you can pass it around. And guess what? I've done tests. I coughed in many of per- many of a person's face to see if I had acute bronchitis. And guess what? I don't, because none of those lucky sons of guns, son of a guns, have gotten sick. Yeah, but I thought that, you know, acute was also one that goes away whereas chronic is something that does not go away well i've had it i had it for like a good week week and a half so no no i mean chronic is like never goes away acute is something that will eventually go away even if it takes a couple matt this is this is a self-diagnosis now i'm not at least you don't have cancer (laughs) Have you checked? Did you double check WebMD? You said you went to WebMD. So are you sure you don't have? Lung I did. Cancer? Well, it was it was it was either lung cancer, pneumonia, uh, either chronic or acute bronchitis, or some kind of venereal disease. Um, nice, but mesothelioma. Mesothelioma. Yeah, I could have been. Uh, it could be a lupus. <laughs> if we were, yeah, if we were in an episode of House. Uh, it would be lupus. lupus. Yes, exactly. Yes, there you go. It's lupus. I have lupus. Uh, and and just in case anybody was listening, uh, mesothelioma is actually not an STD. I was just kidding. It's uh, lung cancer caused by asbestos. So, uh, just in case someone goes and googles, I'm gonna give somebody mesothelioma. You really can't. I mean, you know, the Navy can, but you can't. <laughs> no. Welcome to medical chat with Doctor. <laughs> <laughs> Doctor SLS. Uh, uh, but other than that, it it's been a good uh, a good good week. Good times. Good times were had. Uh, I had a massage Saturday morning, which is a lot of fun when you have all this congestion and all this buildup in your nose, and so you're laying on your stomach and you can barely breathe as you're receiving, you know, deep tissue massageness that is going on uh, you know on your on your back i mean she was getting in so, there so is this how you con them into the happy ending i'm sorry i've got to turn over oh look at no, that <laughs> you know <laughs> if you take care of that i think it'll clear up yeah, the all, all that buildup is just traveling down to my penis <laughs> <laughs> I, I promise you it's just built up mucus it's it's nothing to worry about just 
Just wiggle it out. There yes. you go. Now, was it a uh, what, what was it a couple's massage? No, or, uh, no, no. Did no, you no. go to a I, massage? I can't, uh, did you go to like? I can't do a couple's massage. I mean, my significant other apparently makes noise uh, when she's receiving a <laughs> massage, and I like <laughs> silence. I like to hear that crazy electronic, you know, synthesized Giorgio Marauder meets Inya music that they're playing in the you know in the room. Gotcha. Yeah. I don't know if I'm tripping balls or I'm receiving a very relaxing deep tissue massage, but either way, it was it was fun. It was one of those things where they're like grabbing every inch of you know of the inside of your body through your skin and just rip, feel, it feels like they're they're about to rip it apart. See, my wife likes that. I I am definitely the Swedish kind. I like the nice. Gentle, Pats. you know, where they're just gliding and stuff with the Swedish rub kind of thing. But Jen, oh my God, if you're not literally detaching her collarbone, uh, you know, when you're giving her, she's not happy with it. I just, I don't understand that. Yeah, I mean, it was a little unnerving whenever they're, you know, like they're going on my thigh or my arm or whatever. And it's weird. I mean, I think when you, if you're a good masseuse, either you know exactly what a knot feels like. Or you have, like, some kind of weird sixth sense going on with this shit. Because I could feel her traveling down my arm or my leg or whatever. And then I feel her getting closer to the knot. And I could feel her, like, slowly, like, getting... Like, she's like she's a tiger about to pounce on her prey. It's excruciating pain. And, of course, she sits there pressing so hard on that knot for, like... I, I don't know. It, it feels like 25 minutes. But really, it was probably 10, 15 seconds. And she, you know, just slowly works it out. And it's horrible, but it's crazy. It's like their fingers are a cheetah. And those knots are, I, I don't know, little, little jackrabbits or whatever cheetahs like to devour and prey on the most. So, yeah. Have you ever received, when was the last time you re- you uh, received a massage from a masseuse? Uh, a legit massage, mm. I should say. Because this was only my second time. And the first time I received one was like two and a half years ago. So I'm overdue in the massage department. Professional I, massage department. I am, uh, let's see. Gosh, it's been over ten years. And I actually got a, for Christmas last year, I have a, I have a spa thing uh, that, I'm, that, I'm, that I still haven't used. But honestly... My biggest hang-up is I don't know whether or not I want to get a uh, masseur or a masseuse. Because, like, I, I, I did it for my wife. I got her one of those little package deals with the hot stones and all that kind of shit. Um, like, three years ago, three or four years ago. You like um, when they put the charcoal, the burnt charcoal on your back? I guess. It's just, I don't understand why that's like an extra. I don't understand, hey, here's some river rocks. I got these. I'm going to put them on you. I'm going to throw them in a microwave or whatever. Put them, on, put them in a pot of boiling water, and I'm going to charge you $15. I'm like, I'll just bring some shit in from the parking lot. It's hot outside. I mean, Some know. tar. Uh, <laughs> some hard tar. No, just some rocks. Surely there's got to be some gravel in the parking lot. Sure. Right? Um, but no, so, uh, I mean, I... I it's definitely, it's literally my overthinking it. I mean, I, I don't know if I would feel comfortable with a chick rubbing all over my body. And I get, Wait. look, I totally understand. It's completely professional. It's, it's, there's, it's not, it's just one of those things like, I don't know if I would like, but then at the same time, 
I don't know if I want a guy rubbing all over my... And again, I totally get it. It's completely professional. There's nothing sexual involved. And, and I think those two should should have been switched. Like, I think you should have let off with, you know, I don't really think I want a guy touching my body. But then again, I don't think I really <laughs> want a woman doing it. Well, because my... But, no, because my initial thing is, well, I guess I'd rather have a girl than a guy. But then I'm like, dear God, what if you have like a... A George Costanza moment, right? I mean, but see, the George Costanza moment was with a guy. So now I'm like doubly, yeah. So well, that's why yeah. if you have a masseuse named Latoya, you know she is there for 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 business. Like like I said, she was a cheetah pouncing on her prey when it came to my sore joints. <laughs> Latoya, that's right. She that is a name that only means business. Outstanding. So it was it was it Miss Jackson if you're nasty? Um, no, there was no nastiness. She wrong, was you wrong know, wrong Jack wrong Latoya. Not wrong Latoya. <laughs> <laughs> Not as much plastic surgery. <laughs> oh my god. Yes. That's awesome. So cool. Well let's see, my week um has been pretty good. We're on the twenty sixth of January, if anybody cares. But uh um yeah, my week was pretty good up until tonight. Had some issues with school. Um, I'm I'm trying to take the high road for now. So it was all I could do to not tweet a, a whole bunch of mean stuff. Um, and, and so I'm going to continue to take the high road for now. And um, if everything works out, then great. And if not, you're going to hear all about it next week. I promise. <laughs> so, anyways... Yeah, but I understand that um, there's uh, apparently I've got some penis to look at or something, Tim. You, you need to. Uh, <laughs> I'm not, I don't know. You you mentioned something about audacity and penis, I, but well, no, I, I was saying know. that every time I minimize my my audacity screen. Uh, for those of you who don't know, audacity is the audio software we record on. There are uh, diagrams of penis contraptions. On, on my internet web browser. And I, oh, yeah, and I said that if we get to the weird of the news, which, I mean, I, I guess I have to, we have to get there now. <laughs> uh, so I'm copying this and placing this on your Skype messenger for you to look at. Cool. And I want you to, to look at it, browse through it, and share out loud what, you know, if anything catches your attention. And I'm sure a lot Ooh. of it will. <laughs> Bizarre and horrifying sex patents, people. Take that, Microsoft and the NSA. Alright, what do we got here? Holy crap, that's a guy with a dick attached to his chin. Um, I'm still trying to figure out why it's a dude and not a chick doing this here. Let's see. I think that um, is a female. Look at those eyebrows. It looks like she's, you know, they're... With, with with the thing with the pump thing attached to the yeah chin. well I, those are very thin eyebrows and guys I will post this on the site so you'll be able to follow along <laughs> with what exactly we're talking about. It looks like it's inside the chest. I don't know. This is weird. Okay. Um, <laughs> wow, it's really weird. I st- you would think they'd have long hair. Like if it was a girl, there'd be long hair. This looks like a a small coif at the you know. Just over the forehead, like a right to left part. Kind of <laughs> um, all right, so what we have here is definitely various sex contraptions that are apparently patented. Um, one of which appears to be like a little, uh, 
the the hand squeezy thing that you, you know when you're getting your blood pressure taken that, that the doctor squeezes only it is attached to a spring-loaded penis that uh but see the placement of the little pump thing appears to be inside the body so i'm not quite sure like do they attach it to your heart or something? no i think i think you just I, I i think you squeeze it you know so that oh, means okay. you're you're holding yourself on the ground with one arm. You're you know one arm is supporting you, <laughs> while you're violently having to scree- uh, squeeze this ball thing too. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's got to be a lot of torque on that penis, though. I I'm thinking, man. Could you imagine if the spring broke? Holy crap! Um, especially <laughs> though, I mean, if you're already maybe this. Oh well, I get. I I think I got it. I think I have figured out why this is a dude. Okay. So I think what you're supposed to do is in the missionary position. No, check it out. In the missionary position, uh, you are supposed to insert that and then use your hand to pump it so it's going in and out, and then you're supposed to eat the chick out. Moving on to the next diagram. <laughs> hey, I figured it out. And then if you're, you know, if if you're one of those analingus guys, then you know you can definitely, you know, liquor in the brown eye. I, I don't know that that, now, that thin eyebrow is what's what's getting me. <laughs> Thin eyebrow. You're just, the, you're just holding on to the thin I eyebrow am, for yeah. hope, man. I, very observant. <laughs> All right. And then in this one here, the next one we have is a water massage apparatus. <laughs> which, now this one clearly shows a chick. It's a, it's, I mean, we've got a bun working here and everything. Um, I'm not quite sure the idea here. I suppose it's supposed to be a water fueled water jet powered kind of thing to stimulate an orgasm in a woman from near as I can tell but clearly they hadn't invented a bathtub faucet yet because um, you know you or you could pretty much just turn on you could lay down my ex-wife used to do this uh, she told me about it when we were dating she would lay down on the on you know on her back right and then scoot her butt all the way up to the front of the tub and stick her legs up in the air right and then just hit the water on full blast uh, you know so instead of filling up the tub she was just filling herself up so well yeah. uh <laughs> I, you did not think this was going to take this kind I, of turn, yeah did i didn't <laughs> realize how specific you were going to be with with the with all of these <laughs> oh Wow, now we know what uh, happened with that marriage and, and what, yeah, what Matt couldn't yeah. do. Well, no, she cheated on me when we were engaged and decided to wait until the kid was almost born to finally tell oh. me. Like, it was like a week before Christmas that she finally confessed to the infidelity. I'm like, Merry Christmas, now? Matt. Now? Yeah, yeah, it's like, it's the spirit of giving. That's not the kind of giving we're looking for here. <clears throat> it's also the spirit of forgiveness. Fuck you! That's how that goes. I only made you think that it was because you couldn't fill me up like the bathtub. It probably was. I mean, there's only so much. I mean, I've I've never really had any complaints, but I will tell you, I am not as big around as a tub faucet. I can. I just. There's. I'm sorry. It's. (laughs) Why don't you go down just two two diagrams from the one you're on, and I think I well, so we're gonna pass the oscillating intercourse. There, there's just uh, so much to look at right now, <laughs> uh, and I think I oh think. Oh my god, this things look like the clawing Iron Maiden. Holy yeah, shit. and I think the the, uh, the one that the, uh, this one and the one after will suffice for news of the weird for this week. 
Sex toy has cavity with cavity opening enclosure provided on cavity opening where one or multiple meaningful materials or objects are formed in cavity. I don't even understand what the shit this thing is supposed to do, but it looks like if it popped open at the wrong point, you'd be going to the hospital. That's about as all as I can figure out of here. Um, oh, here we go. Otherwise known as the best way to fuck a flower. <laughs> So basically what you do is you have these, you know, the, these, uh, what's the scientific word for this? Um, let's see, I would, Dildo? well, a flower would be fauna. No, I meant, I meant, uh, I meant flora, the sexual flora. toy it, is what I mean. Sci- I don't know, fucking a flower? Well, okay, so, uh. so the thing is that, so you have not just a dildo, you, you put something that's meaningful and personal within it, so that, that contraption becomes something more than just a pleasure toy for example here they have a flower inside of a dildo one of them has a heart one of them has something that looks like a fish <laughs> inside of one um, yeah I'm, I'm i'm not yeah i don't one or more multiple meaningful okay. materials or objects are formed in the cavity the cavity wall areas or partial areas have mutually different transparencies the sex toy is formed from a material or from multiple parts of materials. The sex toy is partially or totally made from liquid-tight material, which is stretchable or solid, particularly jelly, silicone, plastic, wood, metal, glass, or acrylic glass. <laughs> okay, um, this is the last one I'm going to read, because this is just absolutely fucking hilarious. Device for protection against infectious diseases. Now... Um, it's is a very crudely drawn rubber suit, um, and it says otherwise known as a body condom. It was filed in this patent was filed June 29th, 1990. And the beautiful thing was, is I'm pretty sure Naked Gun came out before 1990. Sure did. I mean, uh, in which case they already used full body condoms in that movie, which was hilarious. But clearly, this guy has never seen a gimp suit. So I mean, it seems to be it would kind of do the same trick here um but yeah it's absolutely hilarious i mean it's just yeah well thank you gizmodo for providing our news of the weird (laughs) for this week (laughs) (laughs) this is one of the best news of the weirds ever man uh all right well i guess then uh since we have adude it up uh long enough shall we get right to it then you should all right, then we shall. Here we go, folks. It is the news. Yes, the news, the news, the news, the news. Okay, so first up from me. Don't worry, folks. The timer, the, the countdown is going. 96 more episodes, and Tim gets to go first. Uh, from HollywoodReporter.com, courtesy of uh, Pamela McClintock. Nicholas Cage to star in Osama bin Laden satire from Borat Director. This was an exclusive for them. Um, now, the interesting thing is, is that this is not news of the weird. This is actually happening. Uh, Borat director Larry Charles is back in action with Army of One, a satirical comedy from Endgame Entertainment and Condé Nast Entertainment, starring Nicolas Cage as a regular guy who goes on a hunt. 
for Osama bin Laden. In a coup for the producers, Harvey and Bob Weinstein have struck a preemptive deal for North American rights to the project via their new TWC Dimension label, designed to be a home for a more commercially-minded fare that both brothers believe in. Wow. Yeah, now it's apparently, Army of One is apparently loosely based on Chris, Heath, Chris Heath's uh, GQ magazine article recounting the real-life misadventures of Gary Faulkner, a Colorado construction worker who took it upon himself to find bin Laden, including trying to sneak into Pakistan and Afghanistan numerous times. Um, what do you think, Tim? Is this something that will be enjoyed? Or do you think this is something that despite the team-up and the names that is going to be played as more of a straight movie. And I don't mean straight in terms of if it's supposed to be a comedy, then... But, I mean, it's not It's not going to be something as off the wall as, like, Borat was. I have no idea. It's Nicolas Cage. I, I don't know. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. Fair enough. All right, what do you got? All right, I'm going to start off small for the first bit of news. From YahooMovies.com Oscar winner Diane Wiest, I'm struggling to pay my rent. This is written by Ryan Gajewski, and it looks like actually this is from uh, TheHollywoodReporter.com. I just found it on Yahoo Movies. And it says this, Despite bringing new opportunities in the short term, the sheen of an Oscar victory can sometimes only go so far. Just ask two-time winner Diane Wiest. The 66-year-old actress who begins previews Tuesday for off-Broadway production, Rashida Speaking, told the New York Times that she is facing money issues due to a lack of high-paying work. Quote, I have to move out of my apartment soon, end quote, we said of her struggle to cover her rent. She earned Oscars for Best Supporting Actress for 1986's Hannah and Her Sisters in 1994's Bullets Over Broadway, both directed by Woody Allen. But after that, she found she was only getting offered roles to play, quote, a nice mom, and that's it. That's all they ever came. Excuse me, that's all that ever came, except in theater, end quote. So it kind of puts a few things into perspective, because you don't really hear about this that often. Uh, and believe it or not, this happens a lot with actors, especially with uh, somebody like Diane Weist. I love her. She's been in uh, many of movies that I l absolutely love. For example, The Birdcage. Um, but, you know, she's right. I could totally see it. She, I mean, they want her to play the lovable mother. I mean, she did that with Parenthood also. And unfortunately, I guess what she's been experiencing is that even though she's being offered these roles of the lovable mother, there's no more depth to the character, it sounds like, uh, regarding these roles that, you know, that are being offered to her. So... It's a shame, man. Yeah, I can't believe... Uh, it's crazy. I mean, I was kind of pretty much caught off guard when I read this for the first time. Kind of had to do one of those double takes, really, because it's Diane Weist. You know, I always thought of her as a prestigious actress. And she is. It's just... She's not getting the good breaks anymore. That is definitely a bummer. Um, I mean, it just goes to show you that um, celebrity really and truly only goes so far. And despite what you think, it can be fleeting. 
<sighs> All right. Well, next for me, coming to us from Deadline.com, courtesy of Mike Fleming Jr. Another exclusive for the, it's, an, it's an exclusive for Deadline here as well. Uh, Simon Pegg co-writing Star Trek Three with Doug Jung. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, Simon Pegg has been set to co-write Star Trek Three, the film that just got Fast and Furious director Justin Lin aboard after Robert Orsi exited the Helmer chair. He will co-write the script with Doug Jung, creator of the TNT series Dark Blue. Pegg's already a pivotal player in the JJ. Abrams produced Paramount's Skydance pick. He will also reprise, reprise his role as Scotty, the engineering whiz originated by James Doohan in the original 1960s Gene Roddenberry series. Yeah. So, I think personally, this is good news. I'm a big fan of Simon Pegg. He's got good chops. He's definitely got good instincts. And... I think that hopefully we'll close out this trilogy with a truly original story with a nice Simon Pegg touch. What, what, what else you got? So next up for me is an article here from Variety. Yes, that Variety, which I swore never to you know, reference again, kind of. But uh, this is too good of an article to pass up. Uh, this is one entitled, Cynodyme Remaking AIPs, Girls in Prison, Brain Eaters, in a shared movie universe. And this is written by Dave McNary, and it says, Cinedime is launching a reinvention of American International Pictures' exploitation titles, including Girls in Prison and The Brain Eaters, in a ten-picture project within a single movie universe. Cinedime is teaming with producers Lou Arkoff from Inspector Gadget, Jeff Katz, who did Snakes on a Plane, and Hal Sadoff, who did Hotel Rwanda, three very drastically different movies, to shoot the ten films with storylines and characters as part of a single-story arc. The films will be shot starting in September with cast and directors to be announced soon. Katz has written all ten films, which are based on Girls in Prison, Viking Women and the Sea Serpent, The Brain Eaters, She-Creature, Teenage Caveman, Reform School Girl, The Undead, War of the Colossal Beast, The Cool and the Crazy, and The Day the World Ended. Cinedyme will handle the theatrical release, DVD, digital, TV, and non-theatrical formats, including on ConTV, Cinedyme's upcoming digital network targeted to the Comic-Con audience. Quote, In a unique twist on the current filmmaking model, all ten films will shoot back-to-back and share a single movie universe with a big recurring cast of anti-heroes, monsters, and bad girls, end quote, said Arkoff, son of AIP founder Samuel Arkoff, quote, This format will allow our casts and directors to build a strong relationship with characters and our audience over the course of several films, end quote. Katz said audiences should respond to the hybrid format, which he called, quote, binge viewing at the feature film level, end quote. Quote, each movie in the series has a complete beginning, middle, and end. Yet watched over all ten films were really telling one larger epic story, end quote, he said. Quote, these are very much at heart indie comic book movies, unpretentious, R-rated. It's fantastic to have a distribution model that fits that sensibility. End all quotes. I'm not going to lie. I think I'm going to see the mashup. <laughs> <laughs> was, it, uh, was it from the producers of Inspector Gadget, Snakes on a Plane, and Hotel Rwanda? Did, is that what sold it? No, it was actually the movie choices. Because the, the prison chick one totally uh, you know, 
rings the nostalgia bell for when you're like when you're a teenager and you're searching the Skinamax for the softcore porn. <laughs> oh yeah, I think that's uh, I think that's what's happening. <laughs> yeah, it should be interesting. All right, I'm gonna let you pick between these two, sir. Would you like to hear about Johnny Depp or would you like to hear about Birdman? Um, how about Johnny Depp? All right, then from MSN.com via E Online. Yeah, courtesy of Francesca Bacardi. Johnny Depp says actors who try to be rock stars are, quote, sickening, end quote. Now, I'd like to point out that this is a guy who played slide guitar on the Wallflowers debut album. Among other things, but you know, well, let, let's see. Let's see if there's any clarifying to be had here. Johnny Depp might have dabbled in performing with the Black Keys, Marilyn Manson, and Oasis in the past, but don't expect him to start his own band or go on tour. At the premiere of his upcoming movie Mordecai in Berlin Sunday, Depp criticized actors who capitalize on their fame to become musicians. "Quote that whole idea for me is a sickening thing. It's always just made me sick." I've been very lucky to play on Friends Records, and it's still going. Music is part of my life, but you won't be hearing the Johnny Depp band. That won't ever exist, end quote. Yeah, he's, he goes on to say, and this is, I think, where it really... Um, this is really what, what I think sums it up in a good way. Quote, the kind of luxury now is anybody with a certain amount of success, if you have a kind of musical being, you can go out and start a band and capitalize on your work in other areas. But I hate the idea. Come see me play the guitar because you've seen me in 12 movies. It shouldn't be that way. You want the people who are listening to the music to only be interested in the music. End all quotes. What do you think, sir? I agree. I, I agree with those sentiments. I'm, I, I guess he's pulling himself out of that by saying, look, I've been lucky to play for some friends and do some stuff, but that's all studio. But I would never go out and try and say, oh, support me in this band just because I'm an actor. What, what do you think, sir? Is he just saying this just to say it? Or is he like, is this like an issue, like a problem that is currently going on? Like, is there an actor that is trying to... I think it's just in general. Okay. I don't think he's really saying anything um, in particular about it. Uh, like, like I don't think he's going after I don't know Keanu Reeves and Dogstar or something like that. I just, I, I, I just think that uh, you know, it's it, somewhere along the line his statements drifted from to that. Um, the quotes are pulled from the Sydney Morning Herald. So. Sure, yeah, I, mean, I guess it's definitely interesting. I mean, I think when I first, when you you were first telling me about this article during the pre-show, um, originally I was, I thought, it's Johnny Depp. I mean, the guy's pretty much a rock star. But then, like, he's not the one that created that persona of, oh, look at me, I'm a Hollywood actor, you know, I, I'm, I'm being I'm being perceived as a rock star. You know, it's, his, it's the Correct. fans that have, you know, given him that persona. Unlike whereas maybe... Robert Downey Jr., on the other hand, he's putting himself, like, I think he, he kind of puts himself in that, you know, more more so in that persona as maybe not necessarily a rock star, but maybe figuratively speaking a rock star. So, yeah, I guess I can see what he's where he's coming from. It's pretty interesting. 
Cool, cool. All right. Uh, well, you're up. What do you got? All right. For last, the last piece of news here uh, is kind of a one-two punch. I'm just going to mention this one little article here because it, it goes along with uh, the second article. Both of them are from io9.com. Um, the first one here, I'm not going to really read anything from it, but it's from an article that's called uh, Your Movie Is Not The Goonies, Stop Saying It Is, written by Meredith Warner. And she goes on to say that, so the people that are going to be making the Monopoly movie, they pretty much said that's going to be like Goonies. You know, they keep comparing the movie to Goonies. And uh, actually, I'll just read, read this little blurb right here. Early this week, the makers of the still very far off Monopoly movie, based on the board game of the same name, made the tired comparison. In an interview with Collider, producer Randall Emmett was prompted with the idea that the movie was similar to The Goonies, and he replied, quote, That's a perfect analogy to what Monopoly will hopefully be. There is a treasure map. It's a family adventure film, end quote. Look, just having a real estate plot in a treasure map does not a Goonies homage make. I said homage. I very well know that is homage. <laughs> True, the Goonies comparisons was more thrust upon the Monopoly producer rather than being something he derived from his own inspiration. No one is running around calling this film the new Goonies, but we are getting so cavalier about name-checking these old films. It's hard not to see that coming. There's a plethora of up-and-coming films, some dead, some still-in-development purgatory, that have name-checked Goonies, including the Viewmaster movie... Kent Alterman's Treehouse and Zach Braff's adaptation of Andrew Henry's Meadow. And I'll quote. And then they go on to say that uh, the uh, the author of this article called Paranorman something something Goonies, you know, which I guess that makes little sense. Uh, so that's going to be the first part of this piece of news. Matt, do you have any uh, input so far? No, no, no interesting. Okay, and so this other io9.com article. Why the Age of the Kids Adventure Movie is Over. This one is written by Rhea Mizra. I apologize if I probably mispronounce that name. It says this, Not so long ago, movies like The Goonies, Stand By Me, E.T., and many more sent pint-sized explorers out into the wild of their own neighborhoods to have adventures. But despite being imitated, they just haven't caught fire the way they once did. Why not? The real reason may actually be off-screen. In response to what I just read you a little while ago, a discussion began about why movies like these, where a group of kids venture off to have adventures, seemingly almost entirely on their own, no longer seem to have the hold on the public's imagination the way they used to. The reason for this, some commenters argued, is not just that the movies have changed, it's also that childhood itself has also changed, and in a much more closely monitored world, those storylines of kids going off on their own resonate less and less. And then the article goes on to quote some of the some of the commenters from the last article that I mentioned. And one of the comments are from Sam the Spaceman, where he says, quote, Movies like The Goonies, or E.T., or The Explorers, are no longer possible because movies like that rely on the exploration of the world of children that is separate from the world of adults. And that world no longer exists. 
kids don't go out to build forts in places their parents don't know about or learn all the best shortcuts to the comedy store on their bikes. They don't walk home to and from school. All play is regulated, either for the sake of safety or the desire of parents to participate in childhood. Kids are raised to be risk-adverse. Another comment from Jared Forrest, I otherwise agree with you, except that I would argue that it's not as much a case of the kids being too sheltered, at least where I live, as it is of kids now spending all their time in front of their tablets, phones, playstations, and whatever. And one last comment here, Sam the Spaceman responds with, That's true, but before we had mobile devices, we had video game consoles and PC computers that you can't take outside with you. But if I wanted to go play Mortal Kombat, which my otherwise overprotective mom said no to, I would walk to my friend's house. The only one supervising that walk was my cat who would follow me around the neighborhood, no joke. And if a third kid had a game or gizmo neither of us had, we would then simply walk to that third house. End all quotes. So what do you think? Do you think this raises a, a good point? I think that the, I think they're right. Um, for all of those reasons... <clears throat> um, and then some. But I think if anything, that's why we need more movies like that. I, I think that it's I think it's over, but I believe that with with another super eight, they could come back. I think that we just need movies um, that can capture the imagination of children, even in the world that they that we live in. Um, it, it's not impossible for people to 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 get that back and for kids to see that and emulate it. I mean, I know it's always don't try this at home, and just because it's in the movies doesn't make it real. Uh, doesn't make it real, but that's not to say that it, it can't happen. Um, even in today's day and age, that we can find a way for kids to see something or see an idea or have something that's really cool, and then. Find a way to translate that so that kids will go out and experience it together. Um, so yeah, I think it's I think it's right for all of those reasons and probably a few more. But that we could get it back if, if we try. My way of looking at it is that back in the day, back in the eighties, seventies, you know, when these movies were most popular, that created our pop culture. You know, especially mine growing up, like Star Wars, Indiana Jones, that created pop culture. Even say like the Simpsons, you know how the Simpsons, be, you know, created pop culture, with everybody quoting the dialogue and everything. Nowadays, it seems like life is now imitating pop culture. Like everything is switched. You know, everybody is relying on, ooh, what's the new, you know, iPhone that's coming out, the new gadget, the new gizmo that everybody has got to have. Man, I gotta be on that train. It's it's very it's upside down now, is what I think. All right. Well, I am going to... Tim and I kind of reversed roles. I had a whole buttload of news this time. So I'm going to go ahead and finish up the news in, like, the striking this weirdest thing ever. Um, We've got three things we're going to go through real fast. Number one, in a shocking move on last Friday, DreamWorks Animation... Oh, I'm sorry. This comes to us from SlashFilm.com, courtesy of Russ Fisher. Uh, DreamWorks Animation closes PDI Studio and cuts 500 jobs. 
Yes, the animation world was rocked this week as DreamWorks Animation closed its PDI studio in Northern California. The closure comes as part of an expected round of DreamWorks Animation's layoffs, but the 500 jobs that were cut this week far exceeded expectations, and the closure of the studio had not been predicted at all. Along with these layoffs comes a significant reduction in production, as the company's planned three film per year output will now back off to only two films, one original per year and one sequel. Along with this closure comes another push for the How to Train Your Dragon 3 release date. The film will now arrive in 2018. Scary crazy. Holy crap. Bad news. I hope they're able to bounce back. Uh, in other surprise news, from Variety.com, courtesy of Dave McNary, Birdman wins Producers Guild Award for Best Movie. Now, we generally don't follow awards around here, uh, with the exception of the Oscars, but this is important. Birdman has won the Producers Guild of America's Daryl F. Z- uh, Zanuck Award for Best Movie, elevating its status as an award season frontrunner since the last seven PGA winners have gone on to win the Best Picture Oscar. Fox's search- Fox Searchlight's dark comedy starring Michael Keaton as a washed-up film star topped American Sniper, Boyhood, Foxcatcher, Gone Girl, Grand Budapest Hotel, The Imitation Game, Nightcrawler, The Theory of Everything, and Whiplash. What's important to note, Boyhood had been the consensus favorite to win the PGA Trophy, based on voting by more than 6,700 PGA members, with American Sniper, Birdman, and Imitation Game pegged as the most likely to score an upset. Um, yeah. Gravity and 12 Years a Slave wound up in a dead heat last year, as both won the Zanuck Award. It was the first tie in uh, the PGA's 25-year history. But the PGA's Zanuck Award has become a strong indicator of Oscar sentiment in recent years, matching the Oscar for the Best Picture in 18 of its 25 years, including the last seven, with 12 Years a Slave, Argo, The Artist, The King's Speech, The Hurt Locker, Slumdog Millionaire, and No Country for Old Men. The PGA winner last diverged from the Oscar Best Picture in 2006, when Little Miss Sunshine won the Xanuck while the Academy opted for The Departed. Crazy. And in the I don't like it, but I'm probably the only one news, from, and this is it, this is the last of it, HollywoodReporter.com, courtesy of Eric Hayden. Emma Watson cast in Disney's live-action Beauty and the Beast. This is literally just from today. Emma Watson is joining Disney's live-action version of Beauty and the Beast as the lead character, Belle, the studio said on Monday, today, the 26th. Uh, The film will be directed by Bill Condon of the Twilight Saga, Breaking Dawn, Parts 1 and 2, and is set to begin production in 2015. No release date has been announced. Um, Now I really don't want to see this movie. Here I was talking about how I was really hopeful, and now we've got Twilight, uh, Twilight directors... And Harry Potter actress, uh, I just, yeah, this is, I don't, it's not good. I don't know, do you have anything you want to add there, sir, to any of those? Interesting, fascinating, and, hmm, in that order, respectively even. All right, well then I guess that is going to close out the news and bring us to I'm the Only One Who Hated It. Shut up! Enough already, Ballstein! Who cares about Derek Zoolander anyway? The man has only one look for Christ's sake! Blue Steel? Ferrari? Latigra? They're the same face! Doesn't anyone notice this? I feel like I'm taking crazy pills!
All right. So this is uh, naturally the converse of the segment of I'm the Only One Who Liked It, uh, where Tim and I take something that was either critically and or uh, critically acclaimed and or the audience loved it. And for whatever reason, we simply don't. And since I had the bulk of the news this week and talked a lot, Tim, why don't you start us off, sir? All right. So I'm the only one who hated it. My pick for I'm the one, only one who hated it is fried green tomatoes. Evelyn tried food. And? I'm sorry, honey. The game's almost over. I just want to see a little bit of it. She tried romance. If I'd answered the door were an only cell thing, would you still be watching the baseball game? No, honey. I'd probably be checking you into a loony bin. What we really need is an assertiveness training class for Southern women. But that's a contradiction in terms, isn't it? Uh, I was waiting for that space. Face it, lady, we're younger and faster. Then... Hey! She met a new friend. Mrs. Cleo Threadgood, 82-year-old widow, imagine that. <laughs> a good friend. I hate candy bars all over the house. What a candy bar ain't gonna hurt you, none. What? No, but a theater 11... <laughs> Who gave her some advice. You need some hormones. <laughs> and told her a story that began long ago. Did the name Itchy Threadgood ring a bell? No, ma'am. I don't think so. You'd remember her. Itchy and her friend Ruth ran the Whistle Stop Cafe. Itchy was a character, all right. <laughs> if you ever touch her again, I'll kill you. Well, I sure as hell scared him, didn't I? But how anybody could have thought she murdered that man is beyond me. You ain't fooling me, girly girl. You in a whole mess of trouble. You understand? Did anybody really think she did it? Some said yes, some said no. Academy Award winner, Kathy Bates. Well, I got mad, and it felt terrific. A wonder... Wonder. And Academy Award winner, Jessica Tandy. How many of them hormones you taking, honey? You didn't kill Ed now, did you? Not yet. I feel better because all these people will live as long as you remember Friends. Best friends. Yes, ma'am! What are you doing? Face it, girls. I'm older and I have more insurance. Yes, that's right. The 1991 flick directed by John Avant, which every lady that I know absolutely adores this movie and that is why i had to talk about this one i rewatched it a couple weeks ago uh and i i've, I've seen it before some time ago and uh, you know I, while watching it i definitely had a more cynical view towards it because all in all it is an enjoyable movie uh there are definitely some good funny parts in it there's some good acting in it and i gotta say i you know kathy bates plays an interesting character and i love me some jessica tandy i mean she was in 
Cocoon. She was in Batteries Not Included. With this kind of a cast, especially those two, this movie definitely has a bit of enjoyment to it. But for those of you who don't know what Fried Green Tomatoes is about, it takes place in two different timelines. The first timeline takes place, I guess, in the mid-80s. And it's Kathy Bates who plays Evelyn Couch, who she herself has like an identity crisis. You know, she has a husband that really doesn't treat her as an equal you know he comes home expects her to have dinner ready and he just doesn't want to he doesn't want to sit at the dinner table and have a conversation with her he just wants to eat his food at his chair and watch the ball game and she doesn't like that she doesn't know what's going on she wants to figure out how to please him but doesn't know how her only solution is eating junk food well she finds herself in this old folks home where she comes across old ninny thurgood played by jessica tandy And they end up striking up a conversation, and Ninny Thurgood goes on and starts regaling tales of these two uh, women that she knew from the past. And so a time lapse happens, and it goes back to Depression-era Georgia. The entire movie takes place in Georgia, both uh, timelines do. But it goes back to Depression-era Georgia, where the story then kicks off with... Mary Stuart Masterson and Mary Louise Parker's characters. Mary Stuart Masterson plays Iggy, they're good, and Mary Louise Parker plays Ruth Jameson. And it begins their story, and their story's interesting because they uh, it's basically about their friendship. Iggy ends up saving Ruth from a violent relationship. Ruth was getting beaten up by her husband. Iggy showed up, saved her, and they end up going off and opening up a little diner together. And that's kind of like what the movie leads up to. It takes a lot of time to lead up to that one moment where Ruth gets saved by Iggy and they open up that diner, which it's about maybe halfway through the movie at that point. And all through this time, it goes back to the timeline. You know, it goes back to Kathy Bates and Jessica Tandy. And every time it goes back, Evelyn goes off and uh, she tries to take Jessica or Ninny's uh, wisdom, wise wisdom, and try to apply her words, you know, her dialogue to her own life, you know. So so she tries to transform herself to make herself more appealing to her husband. And so these this back and forth kind of goes on, and you see uh, Kathy Bates's character, you know, she's trying to find her own happiness, uh, not just trying to please her husband but trying to please herself and do the things that make herself happy. Uh, and that also includes changing herself, which I guess is an interesting way of, of, of making a woman feel better. Oh, if you want to be happy, change yourself, you know? Lose some weight, do some exercise, make yourself pretty. You know, she's always she's trying to make herself pretty and, and more attractive for her husband. And I really don't know what kind of message that really gives off to a woman or girls or, or anything like that. But, you know, that's besides the point. It works for her character and it works, you know, with, uh, with, uh, with that side story that they're going on telling. But the movie doesn't sound as bad, you know, right now. Really, what bothers me about the movie is the is the depression era timeline, the relationship between Iggy and Ruth, in you know the uh, in depression era Georgia, you know it's them getting together. It's how they become close friends. And actually, Matt mentioned this earlier on, and I didn't even think about it. Well, actually, I did think about it when I watched it, but I didn't think about including it in my notes. But there is definitely some lesbianic undertones 
between their characters, and yet it doesn't ever touch on it. I mean, they say that, oh, they were the best of friends, or they are the best of friends, but it seems like there's a little bit more to that friendship than just, oh, you know, we're just good friends. We love being together and cooking together, and we love, you know, dumping water on each other and, and putting flour on each other and, and rolling around in that flour on the ground when really we should be doing our jobs you definitely get the feeling there's something more to this story. But the movie itself doesn't touch it. You know, it doesn't go past innocent frolicking about. Despite, like, the the, the kind of homoerotic glances that they give each other, you know, or the, or the longing looks that they give to each other. But the movie plays it safe. And that brings me to one of my first comments about this movie. This movie has a lot of that Lifetime movie shallowness to the story and its characters. You know, the movie doesn't take any risks in attempts to please everyone. I mean, what I, I mean, what I mean is that it doesn't take any risks because they don't want to upset anybody. Because this movie touches on race. It, you know, like I said, there's a possible uh, lesbian relationship. You know, it touches on domestic violence, abuse. It touches on a hardship in Georgia in that time. And, you know, again, race. Again, murder. And I'm going to get to the murder part in a bit. But with that, they make all these characters likable. And therefore, everybody is playing their role safe. And in part, the story itself is safe. You know, you're investing in these characters, but nothing really happens. And this movie is a good two-hour, two-hour and two-minute, you know, two-hour-plus movie. And so you want more. I mean, there's only so much that the sweet sound of a Georgia accent and the reminiscing of days past, you know, that can only go so far when you have a movie with that long of a runtime. You know, when there's no depth to a movie... Your accent is only going to cover your your cute, sweet little accent will only cover it up for maybe forty five minutes. You know, until you start thinking, you know, there's got to be some more to this movie than what's happening. And that brings me to the murder aspect of of the movie. And I'm going to come out and say this because I'm pretty sure most of you have seen this movie. The movie came out in 1991. You should have seen it. Well, one of the reasons why this movie is called Fried Green Tomatoes, well, part of it, I guess. Uh, is because of what they uh, that they cook these fried green tomatoes at this restaurant that they open up. And while they're working at this restaurant, the husband that was abusing Mary Louise Parker's character, Ruth, comes back into the picture. And one thing leads to another, and he takes her away. She has a baby. Uh, and, you know, he's threatening to beat the crap out of her and take the baby, and people don't like that. And at this time, he they have uh, this black guy that works with him, super nice black guy. Uh, he's, he's like their kitchen hand, and uh, big, tough, kind of almost kind of like the stereotypical, you know, uh, does anything for the nice white woman. He'll beat up anybody that stands in their way, but you know what? Because he is a big, muscular black guy, the white, you know, the, the white judge, you know, the white jury, no matter what ha- what had happened, whatever provoked that fight, he will get in trouble. But you know what? He is such a nice man. And you, you, the audience member, have to feel sorry for this guy because he is such a nice man. That, you know, that kind of crap was going on. Well, the guy ends up dying. 
you know, the, the, the husband, the abusive husband ends up getting killed. And so maybe 30 minutes of the, well, maybe not even 30 minutes, you don't really know what happens. Yet, you do know what happens to him. They cooked him up and they fed him to people. That's what happened to him. And I didn't realize this while watching the movie, but that was supposed to be a mystery. You know, you were not supposed to know that. But the movie makes it so obvious. It goes to the guy, you know, like, oh, something happened. Cut to the next scene, and it's this, and it's the, the black guy cutting up the meat. Well, if you put two and two together, it's pretty obvious what happened, if you ask me. But no, that is not the only time that sort of thing happens. Something else happens at the end of the movie, where it was supposed to be like, oh, oh, oh my god, that's a revelation that I, I had no idea that, you know, that was a thing. And that pertains to Jessica Tandy's character. At the end of the movie, um, a bunch of melodramatic things happen. Stuff from, like, uh, Evelyn, Kathy Bates' character, thinking that uh, Ninny, Jessica Tandy's character, is dead. But really, she just left the 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 old folks' home and went back to her own house uh, not knowing that her old house was actually condemned and torn down. Um, but at the end of the movie, they go by uh, the graves, uh, or the grave of Mary Louise Parker's character, because her character ends up getting uh, contracting some kind of disease and dying. And what you find out at the end of the movie is that Jessica Tandy was actually Mary Stuart Masterson's character of Iggy. So Ninny Thergood is actually Iggy Thergood. And I didn't realize that was a secret. And that that's what I'm talking about with this movie, is that there wasn't enough depth, there wasn't enough meat to these bones to where, you know, like, I just, it didn't feel like one of those movies that, it, you know, to where it was going to have, like, a twist. You know, it's not like a, a major twist like The Sixth Sense, no, but it's... You know, it's something that that should have been more more of like a I don't know more of an enjoyable you know revelation at the end of the movie, and it just it was just kind of kind of annoying. Um, but you know, like like what I wrote here, the the different timelines contradicts each other, making the other timeline feel out of place and forced. Uh, the Depression era timeline, very lifetimey, very soft. Very sweet. Not a lot of comedy in it. You don't really feel bad for it. I mean, you feel bad for uh, for Ruth, who gets abused and whatnot. You want justice to be served. But it's like any well-made Lifetime movie. Though this one definitely had a bigger budget. The music's better. You know, the scenery is better. The actors and actresses are better looking. But the acting is subpar. You know, it, it felt more like you're you're watching you know, like whenever you went you you watch uh, Tropic Thunder with Ben Stiller. They have all those fake trailers at the beginning of the movie, and they're making fun of you know the goofy comedies, you know the the, the over the top comedies, the over the top action movies. Well, to me, this would have been like a good over the top, you know, Southern period depression area period movie. I don't want to say it felt more like a spoof, but it was just too. Too creamy, too whipped. It was like a whipped, frothy cream. You know, that that's kind of how it moved on screen. And, let's see. And, really, when it comes down to it, the movie is just a manipulative tearjerker for, for, for ladies or, or guys that like these kind of movies. Does this movie make the... Or does that mean that the movie is absolutely horrible? No, I mean, the movie is a definitely likable movie. I mean, you got a, a, a solid performance from Kathy Bates... Uh, I mean, Jessica Tandy is Jessica Tandy, so you can enjoy her in any role. 
But, you know, so but it's just so many people love this movie. Like, love this movie. And I just... I just don't think it warrants that acclaim. So that's the reason why I'm the only one that kinda, sorta, but not really, but really did, but kinda so, hated fried green tomatoes. For myself, mine is last year's X-Men Days of Future Past. So many battles waged over the years. And yet, none of them like this. Are we destined to destroy each other? Or can we change who we are and unite? Is the future truly set? Mutants, we now find ourselves on the edge of extinction. You'll need to go into the past to end this war before it ever begins. Use your power. Bring the X-Men together. It's good to take the two of us. Side by side at a time when we couldn't be further apart. Things that mean the most to me. Maybe you should have fought harder for them. There is a new enemy out there. Mutants. You'll need a new weapon for this war. I know what I have to do. It's us for them. All those years wasted fighting each other, Charles. A lot of people die. Friends. We've been given a second chance. Guide us. Lead us. I don't want your future! We were supposed to protect them! I remember. We we covered this ground quite extensively back in May of 2014, uh, and it's uh, for episode 77. So I encourage you all to go back and listen uh, to that. Uh, you can jump to about an hour and ten minutes into the show, and that's where the flicks are, and you can go to it from there. I'm just going to sum up here, okay? Basically, Singer fucked it up by putting people in it that he didn't need to put in it, um, and having a whole shitload of, of, of plot holes, and then um, taking what could have been an amazing 30-year run of all sorts of fun and amazing things to do and just fuck it all up just so he could put his friends back in it. And, um... Yeah, and then the special effects are really shitty as the it just gets worse and worse. It's like they ran out of money by the end of it. So I'm just going to sum that up. Please go to episode 77 
and listen to everything in detail. But yeah, I hate. I am literally, and I know I'm the only one that hates it. X Men: Days of Future Past. That fucking film. The originals need to die in a fire. And somehow, like the rapture of the Blu-rays and the DVDs would be great. All right, God, wherever you are, get a rapture going. So. That's going to go ahead and conclude I'm the only one who hated it and bring us to the movie. <laughs> This week for the movies, we have some Oscar nominees going around, which is, of course, what we're doing to get us all the way through. Um, oh, and as a side note, next week we're going to be doing our special bonus segment. It's going to be uh, a three squared for our favorite oddball movies. Basically, movies that were made of and by the people of the day uh, in formats that are that were not necessarily ill-conceived or anything um but basically stuck out like a sore thumb and have been largely forgotten um as a, just an example it might get used it might not but as an example think mystery man so we're gonna have our picks for the our favorite odd man out movie um the movies for this week that we're gonna be covering though Still Alice, Mr. Turner, and Two Days, One Night. So, where do you want to start there? So, oh, and I'm sorry, neither one of us were able to make it to the theater and do Mordecai. Which, depending on how you look at it, might have been a good thing. I don't know. Um, where do you want to start, sir? Uh, let's go with Still Alice. Alright, Still Alice. American, uh, 2014 American drama film. Written and directed by Richard Glatzer and Wash Westmore. This is based on Lisa Genova's 2000-selling best... 2007 best-selling novel of the same name stars Julianne Moore in the role of Alice, a Columbia linguistics professor diagnosed with early-onset Alzheimer's. Um, we've got uh, also Alec Baldwin, Kristen Stewart, Kate Bosworth, Hunter Parrish. Um, and I have to tell you, this is probably one of the best character studies that I have seen. Um, and I don't know of too many actresses who could have pulled it off. And I'm definitely glad that it was Julianne Moore. Um, I'm also a huge fan um, of Alec Baldwin's acting. And after I, it was last year, very early last year, after I had talked about his piece where he was talking about stepping out of the limelight for a while, um, it's nice to see him on screen again. And I do enjoy the chemistry between Alec Baldwin and Julianne Moore. Um, but this is definitely a, just a great character study. Um, I, I like, for the most part, all of the simple shots and everything like that. The only, for me, the only drawback to this movie, and it's not an exceptional drawback for me, but it was enough to hurt a little bit, was I really, it was really hard for me to buy into um, the the kids uh kate bosworth and Kristen stewart and hunter Parrish. i don't know i'm just not a super huge fan of kate bosworth but um really surprised me with Kristen stewart because honestly outside of melancholia um i have enjoyed almost everything that uh Kristen stewart's done wait hang on chris wait no wrong Kristen. sorry yeah sorry 
bad example. Wrong, Kristen. Good lord, what the fuck was I thinking about? Um, <laughs> it was Kristen no. Dunst's Dunst's yeah, Kristen boobage. Dunst. There yeah, we go. I mean, Thank you. Yeah, that, that kind of hypnotized Dunst. you. You would think you would think that I would remember such an amazing. Wow, and what the? Um, yeah, that was way dumb. Okay, I apologize for that. So. Kristen Stewart, yeah, and I'm not a big fan of Kate Bosworth. Kristen Stewart and her breathy style of acting, I don't know. The kids, I just wasn't buying it. Um, the kids really hurt it for me. All other aspects of the movie, I really enjoyed. It's got a very nice sound to it. Um, I enjoyed the cinematography. It was simple, um, elegant, um, definitely not overstated, and exactly what the film needed to focus on these characters and especially Julianne Moore who this is actually happening to um, and I also like that it touches on something that a lot of people don't realize happens, early onset Alzheimer's does happen um, so yeah so I, I basically I took a quarter star away for each kid um, so we end up with a movie four and a quarter stars uh, 4.25. Really, really enjoyed this movie. Definitely see why there's Oscar noms coming out of this, so yay. What do you got there, Tim? Pretty much every complaint on your end, although I think Kristen Stewart wasn't as bad. Well, I didn't think she was as bad. Uh, I, I especially enjoyed how she handled her her mother. I think everybody kind of like got progressively better as the movie went on. I was actually unimpressed with Alec Baldwin, because I think Alec Baldwin gets typecasted in those characters, those types of characters, I mean, really, the only different, the only difference about this character, the character in this movie, is that he was actually a good husband. You know, like he wasn't cheating on her, he wasn't doing anything bad. It's just he's a working man. You know, he he lives for his work, and but he still loves his wife and everything. So, I mean, that aspect was interesting, but you really don't see that part of Alec Baldwin's character until the second half of the movie when the illness actually starts to, to really take effect, when he's making those sacrifices for his wife. And in part, you know, you, can, you see her kids, mainly Kristen Stewart's uh, character, you, see, you start seeing her making little sacrifices for her mother. And you can see this by the, through the Skype calls. That was some of the best acting that Chris, I've seen Kristen Stewart, uh, Stewart do, which is pretty good. But everything else involving the side characters, I didn't buy it all so much. Everything was just too clean. You know, everything felt too right. However, the movie is supported by its effective subject matter and Julian Moore's Oscar-worthy performance. I honestly think Julian Moore will win the Best a uh, Actress Oscar for Still Alice. Uh, she was wonderful. I, I think this movie uh, pertaining, like with with how the showing how the illness progressed, did it right. It did it in a way to where it wasn't too depressing. I mean, this movie isn't enjoyable, but it's no like a more. You know, where a more is like you're watching the movie and every ten minutes you're wondering like, holy shit, this is what I can look forward to possibly is having to deal with this. You know, this is just like, oh my god, you're watching. You're watching her go through this illness, or having to deal with this illness, and it was just done in such a in such a wonderful way that you know I don't think I've ever really seen this kind of portrayal before. I guess you know I, I really liked it. It made sense because Julianne Moore is pretty much in this movie, you know, in every single shot of this movie, and you know she was she was fantastic. I loved it. Four point two five on my end as well. Right. 
on. All right, so where do you want to go from here, sir? Let's do uh, two days, one night. Two days, one night. This is the winner of the week for me. Uh, it is the 2014 Belgian-Italian-French drama films written and directed by uh, the Dardenne brothers. It stars Marion Cotillard and Fabrizio uh, Rondioni. So I hope I got that right. I apologize for any butchering of any names there. Uh, basically, this is taking place uh, in a s- small industrial town in Belgium. Uh, Marianne uh, Cotillard's character of Sandra has a nervous breakdown. And basically, she has to take time off her job. The uh, it, And then, so what, what happens naturally, everybody has to cover for her. The problem is, everybody kind of figures out She's pretty easy to replace. Um, they basically offer everybody a thousand bucks to just go ahead and replace her, <laughs> like vote to or a vote to basically vote to eliminate her position entirely. So when she comes back in, she's basically got one weekend. So she's got two days, one night to convince everybody, uh, please don't, you know, l- let me have my job. And then, just like everybody else in the world, virtually everybody else in the world, you know, when they throw a lot of money at you, um, you're like, man, I I need that. Wow, I could use that. So, what do you do? Um, This is, aside from having just beautiful things to look at in the visage of Marion Cotillard, um, I I really like the way this movie... Uh, I, I like the story that it tells. This is one of those things. Uh, again, I say this every year. Why do I say this every year? Because I have to keep saying it every year. One day, one day, you people will listen to me. This is why you need to get into foreign films. You got people need to learn to uh, read subtitles, and people need to learn to just deal with off audio if it's a, if it's ever like a rough cut or whatever. These movies, you're missing on so much. You're missing on so much. There's such great films out there like this. Um, it just tells a fantastic story. Um, I just felt like it was... By the end of the movie, I just kind of felt like it was a little too mushy. Um, and it took me out of the world that the movie had worked so hard to put me in and stayed in so convincingly. Um I, it's, I'm not going to spoil the ending or anything. Clearly, you need to see this for yourself. But um, I just kind of felt that, for me, uh, by the time you're getting through the end, it just felt like it was too mushy. Like it was trying too hard to be... Uh, just to be more emotional than it needed to be. Um, but, all that aside, still a great movie. What a wonderful story. Breath of Fresh Air for me. Four and a half stars. What makes this movie intriguing is that it's a very simple story. With Ida, you know, that was another very simple story. This one is simple, and it's very much realistic. I mean, that's what a lot of people are are saying about this movie. It's realistic. And that is to be attributed to the two directors. They worked on, I mean, a number of their movies is kind of in the same vein. You know, it's it's real, you know, like the characters are experiencing real emotions, real feeling, and it comes across the screen like you're looking through a window, really. There's no gimmicks with this movie. Everything progresses on its own. And with that, it's interesting to watch. 
that is especially interesting because of Marion Cotillard. She is wonderful in this role. She is wonderful in most roles that she that she takes on. A couple things happen in this movie where it's like, okay, a lot of repetition is going on. She's asking this person, then she's asking this person, and I understand she's asking everybody the same thing, but the, like the beginning of the movie, she starts off way up here, and you can't see my hands, but my hand is kind of way up here, you know, kind of touching the fan a little bit. Freaking out, she has no idea what to do. She comes down a little bit, just a little bit, with her emotions. There are a lot of peaks with her emotions, but not too many sustained valleys, I guess is what I'm trying to say. She's either way up here when she's freaking out, or she's way down here when she's, uh, you know, drugged up. Not drugged up, but like taking her medication and a little bit more relaxed. It's fascinating to watch. It's definitely good. Um, I just don't think it was as great as as what mo- what a lot of people think. Uh, so I give this one three point seven five out of five. Still enjoyed it. You know, still really. I thought it was still a good movie, but just not quite. Not quite there. Well, that is going to leave us with Mr. Turner. All right, so this is the 2014. It's British, French, German. It's bio- biological. Uh, biological? Good Lord. I'm fucking up actresses. I mean, how do you... St- I can't... I still can't forgive myself for screwing up Kristen. Oh, good God. Uh, and now I can't even say the word biographical. Biographical drama film. <laughs> it's written and directed by Mike Lee. Uh, and stars Timothy Spall, Dorothy Atkinson, Paul Jessen, uh, Marion Bailey, Leslie Manville, and Martin Savage. Now, you won't really recognize any of these names, but you should recognize most of the faces, and especially the lead, played by Timothy Spall, uh, because he was little, uh, oh, the rat guy from Harry Potter, Peter Pettigrew. Okay? So, you know... You, you, he's, you actually get to see him in something else. It's amazing. It's great. Um, he does a fantastic job of acting in this film. Uh, it was really nice to see him doing something that American audiences wouldn't necessarily recognize, but at least maybe get the face facial recognition to get him to go see this movie. It's, it's fantastic. Um, and it takes the life of a very complex man, the end of the life, basically. It's the last 25 years or so of his life. He plays J.M.W. Turner. Um, he's a British painter. Now, this is a guy who, um, I guess the easiest way to put it, it feels like he lives in his father's shadow. Um, is the best way I can explain it. And I, I don't believe I'm misinterpreting that. Um, his father's dead by this point, of course. Um, and basically kind of how he goes about the end of his life um, and how it affects his work, how it affects his relationships um, or lack thereof when it comes to certain <laughs> members of his family. And yet it also goes to show the complexities that run deep and cause a man to be duplicitous in nature, but not necessarily in an evil way. Uh, We all have sides to ourselves that we choose not to show. We have things about ourselves that we deem private. And yet, those things affect us um, and inform our character and inform the way that we interact with the world. And that's very, very important um, to be able to distinguish that. 
And so what you get on the surface of a man who you may or may not like, you can see redeeming qualities in a man of this character of this stature and, and character. Um, and again, brilliantly played by Timothy Spall. It's got a great supporting cast. Uh, I just I get that the movie is a biopic. I get that there's a lot of stuff to cover for 25 years of someone who was very profound. I just don't think it needed to be two and a half hours. Um, so the length of the movie for me hurt this one by a full star. What could have been a five star movie I just felt was really too long. Um, and I, I just needed to be tightened up by at least 30 minutes. It still would have given you a good two hour movie. So worth watching. Really liked it. But four stars for the length. So, bring us home, Tim. Yeah, Mr. Turner is definitely a fascinating biopic. If you're going to make a biopic, this is how you should do it, minus the, the kind of the bloated running time. So this movie's directed by Mike Lee. Um, he makes beautiful films. One in comparison is Topsy Turvy. Wonderfully shot, equal in length, but it, it hits all, the, all those marks that a biopic needs to hit. I don't know, if uh, Matt, if you've ever seen Topsy Turvy. But it's about the making of the Mikado uh, operetta. You know, it's just fascinating. You know, so much British humor and a very mild, nuanced British humor, which is to me is the best kind of humor. And really, Mr. Turner is littered with nuanced humor. Everything from, you know, his uh, to his eccentricness to the, all the supporting characters. Really, I mean, it's just all based on the the character, you know, everybody's characterizations, everybody's portrayal of their characters. Because really, you know, the movie's not shot to be a comedy. It's just like the natural comedy from these people is really funny. You know, it's just well made. But this is an interesting movie because, like what Matt said, this takes place uh, between 1775 and 1851, and this was an interesting time for J. M. W. Turner. Because this was kind of like his... This is when he reinvented himself. He started experimenting more with painting. And I, I mean, I don't want to say like he was like, oh, I'm, I'm going to experiment with this. No, it was just like something clicked in his mind where this was like his next step. This was his, this is like his, uh, he was evolutionizing his own way of painting. And with that, he became more eccentric, he just does all these little quirky things that are just fun and interesting to watch. And yet you are watching this man who doesn't necessarily have a problem. And yet he looks like he's angry all the time. It was just absolutely interesting. You know, it was a, it was a great character for Timothy Spall to take on. But like I said, though it does have a bloated running time of two and a half hours, the movie plays well on so many freaking levels. It somehow becomes a masterpiece in its own right. I mean like a literal masterpiece, a visual masterpiece. Because I think most of the shots in this movie, they look like pieces of artwork from that period. The first opening shot, the establishing shot, the opening of the movie with the milkmaids walking by, you see the, uh, the windmill in the back. And, you know, the camera turns and you see him standing in the field. Just like the fog, the lighting, everything. And then you go back in the movie and you look at Turner's paintings. Spitting image of some of his paintings. Like the style of it, the look of it, the tone, or the not the tone, but the mood, the atmosphere. It's, it's quite interesting that they tried to make, they, they had the movie kind of look like the painting. 
So it's kind of like you're experiencing Turner's story through his own eyes, in a way. And I thought that was a lovely little touch. That even though the movie was long and bloated, visually, the movie is well worth the time. I mean, multiple shots. I I audibly commented with a wow, or oh my god. Like, it was absolutely beautiful. The contrast of the, the colors on the costumes to uh to the look of the of, of the set pieces you know of the scenery the outside scenery the landscape it's just wonderful camera placing was uh was a job well done for sure i think dick poop definitely <laughs> deserves the academy award for best cinematography for this movie i thought it was going to go to like maybe birdman but no dick pope did a fantastic job though i think a lot of people aren't going to like this movie because of the runtime and because of the content, I think a lot of people aren't really going to put, you know, like, oh, hey, you know, there's more to this movie than it being a slow-paced, nuanced movie. But if this movie was more of a modern, nuanced film, I think more people would enjoy it because it's modern. You know, maybe more well-known actors will be in it. You know, a lot of people love There Will Be Blood. Well, that is a slow-paced, kind of nuancey type of movie as well. Yet, people love that movie. You know, because it's more iconic. plays more into pop culture. Well, this movie's a period piece. It's about somebody that a lot, most of the American public have no idea who this guy is. So this doesn't really fit well. You know, this kind of fits into the acquired taste, you know, setting, really. Kind of like with foreign films. You know, like Two Days, uh, One Night. A lot of people aren't going to dig it. But I did. Uh, I give this one between 4 to 4.25... Uh, just really the pacing of this movie kind of takes away a little bit. 4 to 4.25 range. Uh, leaning more towards 4.25. Well, alrighty then. Either way, that works out to a, an average of 4. So you should probably just go see the movie. You know, whatever it's worth. <laughs> anyway, so the movies for next week are going to be The Box Trolls, Barunga, apparently on Netflix, and Citizen 4. Yes, two documentaries and a children's film. Outstanding. And if you guys were listening at the end of the year, this was my movie that I got to see last year but we didn't cover on the show, was The Box Trolls. So you're in for a treat, I promise. Um, All right, well then I guess that is going to bring us to the spiel, is it not, sir? Spiel on. All right, well, the music you've been listening to has been brought to us by our music partners, Cries of Solace. You can check them out at ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com, both slash Cries of Solace. As for us, we, of course, are the SLS Cast, and you can find us at SLSCast.com. You can send us an email to the SL... Oh, big lord. You can send us an email to the show at slscast.com you can follow us on twitter at the slscast you can follow me this is matt on twitter at nittwit12345 you can also hitch a ride on the information superhighway and see if you can track down tim on twitter and of course you can always subscribe to us on itunes and or stitcher radio so until next week this is matt saying that thanks to michael kane i get to say this My view of actors is that basically they're all harmless lunatics who'd be on the psychiatrist's couch, except that we get this sort of catharsis every six months or so, and we go and be absolutely someone else. And this is Tim saying that our favorite listener out there, if you're interested in giving Matt a massage, please email us. (laughs) (laughs) 
on the official SLS cast website or make it public via Twitter and, you know, include us in your Twitter thing. Uh, we're talking about you, know Johnny, Johnny White, White Trash. is going to do this, dude. You, do you understand? He's, like, going to show up at my door with a with a Jersey Boys poster or something in his hand and... <laughs> <laughs> oh. oh my god this will be great talk to you guys next week thanks again for listening to the SLS cast with your hosts Matt and Tim remember that you can find us at slscast.com at the SLS cast for twitter also on facebook and you can only subscribe on itunes Thanks again for listening.